So this evening I wanted to continue exploring these ten skillful qualities of heart and mind that are known as the ten parami. And so far I've been working through them in the classical order that they're presented in. So you may remember we started a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago with generosity or dana. And then last week we were looking at sila, which is ethical conduct. Really that foundational commitment to non-harming. That's the foundation for this whole path that we're traveling on. And just to say there's a huge amount we could explore in terms of sila, even if we just keep to the five ethical training precepts, which as you know, are the commitment to refrain from harming living beings, to not take what is not freely offered, in other words, not to steal, to not misuse our sexual energy in ways that cause harm, to not speak dishonestly or harshly, and not to abuse intoxicants that cloud the mind and lead to heedlessness. So we could easily choose any one of those five precepts and spend a few weeks diving into it. And in fact, I probably will return to some of them later in this series. But tonight I wanted to start looking at the third parami, which is nekama in Pali, usually translated into English as renunciation. And I wanted to go there because, as we'll see, renunciation is really crucial to the development of all the other parami too. But first, just to acknowledge that of all the ten parami, it's this one, renunciation, that tends to draw the most negative reactions from people. And when I looked up the dictionary definition of what the English word renunciation means, that's not so surprising. Because here's just a few of those definitions. Abandoning, repudiating, sacrificing something, giving up, resignation, abdication, foregoing, abstention from, refraining from, going without, doing without, giving up, eschewing, and rejection of. So how does that make you feel? (laughs) I'm not seeing too many kind of bright smiles of inspiration. (laughs) And so I think it's important to know that the English word renunciation is not actually a great translation of that Pali word nekama. So according to Gil Fronstel, the prefix net means out, and crown means to walk or to travel. So it more literally means going forth or going out or stepping out in classically into the monastic life, leaving behind mainstream conventional ways of being. And Gill makes the point that in that Pali word, what's, we, there's more emphasis on what we get from doing that than in what we're leaving behind or abstaining from. So I think it's important to keep in mind that, again, the focus here is more on the benefit that comes from practicing renunciation than on what we're giving up. And so you might remember last week in relation to sila, I mentioned how there were some pretty significant differences between Buddhist approach to ethics and mainstream approach to ethics. 
So in the Buddha's understanding, he emphasized over and over again the happiness that comes from being committed to non-harming instead of perhaps the more conventional tendency where there's a tendency to focus on punishment for our transgressions. And there's a similar difference here in relation to renunciation. So rather than, you know, we want, as best we can, try to put aside that tendency to associate renunciation with giving up pleasure of various kinds or somehow depriving ourselves of what we enjoy. Because again, in the context of the Buddha's teachings, the emphasis is on happiness. In fact, almost every time this word nekama, renunciation, is used, it's talked about as the bliss of renunciation. And it's always framed in positive terms. I've only ever seen it as a quality that's described as leading to happiness, to delight, to bliss. So just one example from the Dhammapada. It says, even the gods envy the awakened ones, the mindful ones, the wise ones, who are intent on meditation and delight in the peace of renunciation. So delight in the peace of renunciation. Perhaps that association with peace is giving us some clues about where this what this term renunciation is actually pointing to. So rather than being about trying to avoid pleasure or maybe even punishing ourselves or depriving ourselves of what we enjoy, both of which are not likely to lead to peace, I see this quality as an invitation to explore our relationship to wanting. So as I think most of you know, in the Buddha's core teaching on the Four Noble Truths. In the Second Noble Truth, the Buddha identified craving as the root cause of dukkha, of dissatisfaction, of stress, of distress, of suffering. Now, craving is a strong word, but it includes actually a whole spectrum of wanting, from just that slightest pull towards that nice piece of chocolate that I had earlier, all the way through to the intensity of full-blown addiction. So if we start to understand renunciation as an invitation to explore the, the dynamics of wanting and how to develop a healthier relationship to all sense desires, maybe it starts to become clearer how it supports deep happiness. So as we start this exploration of wanting, it's important just to acknowledge not all desire is unskillful. There are actually many wholesome, beneficial, beautiful desires. The desire or motivation to understand ourselves better, for one. The desire to avoid harm, to help others. These are beneficial desires. And generally speaking, what the Buddha is pointing to is not so helpful is the wanting, the craving for pleasant sense experiences. And again, it's not the pleasant sense experiences themselves that are problematic. It's the degree of attachment or clinging to them that's the issue. So just a very simple, almost banal example. 
Say you're at work and somebody brings in a big plate of chocolate brownies, homemade chocolate brownies for morning tea. And you might take one and you can just enjoy the flavor, the texture, the sweetness, the deliciousness. Maybe you can appreciate that person's generosity in sharing the brownies with you. There's no problem. But if you find yourself counting how many brownies are left on the plate and how many people still haven't had one and wondering if you could just quickly grab a third one on your way back to your desk while no one's looking, then you've shifted away from the simple enjoyment of pleasant sensations to the terrain of greed and then the consequent suffering. And so for me, that's what this parami is really inviting us to explore that movement from pleasantness to liking, to wanting, to greed, to craving. And it's inviting us to explore how do we keep coming back from the deep end, so to speak, because that's where the suffering is. And in fact, one of my teachers, Joseph Goldstein, he referred to renunciation as non-addiction. Non-addiction. And I think, again, we get that sense of the ease, the peace, the freedom when we're not driven by our wanting and our desires. And it maybe brings us closer to the happiness that the Buddha's pointing to. So like all of these paramis, these are trainings, and we can practice them on different levels. The first, the most obvious level, is looking at our attachment to material things, to pleasant experiences, and to comfort. And then as our parami becomes more refined, we can look at more subtle forms of clinging. For example, clinging to our views and opinions, our beliefs, which sometimes are held so tightly that they become an actual identity and we use them to reinforce a sense of who we are. So in this way, the practice of relinquishment can support deeper and deeper and deeper levels of letting go. Ultimately, all the way through to the freedom of nibbana, of awakening. For this evening, though, I'd like to keep it simple. And just for a moment, see if you can touch into the experience of wanting and also, crucially, the absence of wanting in the context of your own life. So I thought to just take a moment to see if you can bring to mind an example from your own life of a time when you really, really wanted something. Maybe it was something material, like a new car or a new house. Or maybe it was an experience you wanted, a more interesting job or maybe an exotic holiday. Maybe it was wanting a person, maybe someone you had a crush on as a teenager. So just something or some experience or someone that you really believed was going to make you happy and it brought up that wanting. Just for a moment of silence, see if you can bring to mind an experience of that. And if you can't, you can just abide in equanimity. But maybe there's something that comes into your mind, a memory of a time of really being caught up in wanting. As you bring that memory to mind now, you might just tune in and see what effect 
did that wanting have then or perhaps again now on the body? What's it like to relive that experience of intense wanting? And then what effect does it have on the heart and the mind? Maybe different kinds of emotions or thought patterns coming up. And it might be somewhat unpleasant, but see if you can just stay with it for a moment or two. And then remember what happened to that wanting. Perhaps you managed to get what you thought you wanted. And maybe it wasn't actually as fulfilling as you assumed it was going to be. Or maybe you didn't get it and eventually, eventually that desire just faded away. So either way, just taking a few moments now to acknowledge that that wanting is no longer present. See if you can notice what it's like to register the absence of wanting. What's it like to not be caught up in that way? Perhaps it's just a simple feeling of neutrality. Or maybe there's a quiet contentment. Maybe a subtle feeling of relief. Or maybe a more profound, pronounced sense of, thank goodness, that's not there anymore. So just to notice. Okay, coming back to here and now. Anyone willing to share what they experienced in that? little exploration of wanting and the absence of wanting. So thank you for sharing those. That was really powerful. So I think most of us, when we pay, really pay attention to the effect of wanting, it's pretty unpleasant. Unconsciously or unconsciously, we tend to go chasing after the things we think we want. Actually, is a way to get rid of the agitation of the wanting. And usually we think that the happiness we feel at getting what we want is coming from the object or the experience or the person that we were craving. But if we look more carefully, we might actually see that it actually came from the relief of no longer being caught up in the wanting. So you might check that out. Just as a very simple example, in my again, my own experience, have you ever had that experience of wanting some kind of snack food? Maybe potato chips or a chocolate bar or, or a piece of cake, yes? <laughs> and you have a few mouthfuls of whatever it is and you think, well, that's enough. And then suddenly the whole thing's gone. <laughs> and if you really slow that down, that happened to me enough times that I was able to be curious about it. What I discovered was that 
I was eating that thing to get rid of it because I didn't want it impinging on my consciousness and stimulating the agitation of wanting. It wasn't that I really wanted more chocolate. I just wanted to stop wanting the chocolate, if that makes sense. So that's just something to, to play with. And after the chips or the chocolate have gone, there might be a feeling of happiness. There's a momentary release of wanting. But then unfortunately it's often followed by regret <laughs> because we've just eaten the entire packet and gone against our own better judgment. So mindfulness, as always, is really the key here to recognize when we're getting caught in that pattern. And the second key is to meet it with kindness and compassion. Spinning out in self-judgment often just strengthens the habit even more. The unpleasantness of self-criticism can push us into chasing after more of the same pleasure or maybe a different kind of pleasure to try and soothe ourselves unconsciously. So I remember this uh, statement from the author of The Little Prince. I may not pronounce his name right, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. He said, I drink because I'm ashamed of my drinking. And we can feel that maybe in relation to eating or you know, other kinds of craving and addiction. And just to say, you know, mostly so far I've been exploring this on an individual level. But I think it's also important to acknowledge that wanting, in fact greed, is something that's powerfully reinforced on a societal level too. And so this parami of relinquishment, it can challenge some pretty deep-rooted cultural conditioning, especially for those of us brought up in capitalist societies where we're taught from a pretty early age that happiness comes from acquisition. The more stuff we get, the happier we'll be. And so advertising and mainstream media are constantly telling us the only way to be happy is to get this, buy that, do this, become that, stay safely within your ever-shrinking comfort zone and get more money and spend more money and own more things and acquire more property and only then you'll live happily ever after. And there are a few problems with that approach. One is that fundamentally it doesn't work. No matter how hard we try to satisfy our desires, there's always something else to want. And consumerism and capitalism tend to push us into constant dissatisfaction, a sense of lack, a sense of not-enoughness, that comparing ourselves to others, that means no matter how much we have, it doesn't fill that inner hold. And as we know, I think some of the most miserable people are people who have the capacity to fulfill every desire they might have more and more billionaires. How much is enough? When they studied billionaires, they said, well, this guy over here, he's got X, so I have to get Y. And then he gets Z, and I have to, you know, we're just, it, it's just trying to fill that hole. And in the Buddha's cosmology, there's a group, there's a hell realm filled with what are known as hungry ghosts. Any of you familiar with that? And the hungry ghost has a massive belly and a pinhole mouth because it's constantly hungry, but it can never satisfy itself. 
That's a particular form of suffering. No matter how hard they try, they're always starving. And again, on a society-wide level, at least in the more developed world, I think one of our major addictions is to comfort. So as a very broad generalization, the more materially wealthy we are, the less tolerance we seem to have for discomfort. And the more time and energy and money we spend on trying to stay in our comfort zones. And the problem with doing that is over time, they tend to get smaller and smaller. And our capacity to be with even relatively minor discomfort tends to shrink. And I think I may have shared with some of you before an experience I had in Thailand really early on when I was sitting my first Vipassana retreat. And it was in a center um, owned by a nun. And she had set up that place. She got in two Western teachers because she wanted Vipassana insight to be available to Western backpackers, which was a really generous thing of her to do. So she had this retreat center next door to a monastery. And by Western standards, it was pretty basic. So there were no showers, there were no hot water, there were no flush toilets. We stayed in little bamboo huts that were just big enough for two people to lie down side by side. And we slept on woven bamboo mats. And we had one thin pillow and one acrylic blanket each. And it was pretty hard to sleep at night. But it was also very obvious that we were being offered everything that was available. And we were being offered it in the spirit of real generosity and kindness. And so after a couple of days of just getting used to this pretty basic, even austere life, to my amazement, I felt a deep happiness that I had never experienced anything like before in my whole life. And if you told me that that would be my experience, I totally wouldn't have believed you. And if there had been an option to upgrade to a single room with an inner sprung mattress and air conditioning and hot water and a shower, I would have taken it. But I would have missed out on a very powerful opportunity to see that actually happiness is not nearly as dependent on being comfortable as I'd thought. And maybe some of you have had experiences like that, maybe traveling maybe camping somewhere uh, relatively remote where you don't have all of your usual creature comforts. But for me, what was interesting with that experience that really threw it into relief was a few, maybe weeks or months later, I went to a women's retreat in England. And this time, the conditions were the total opposite. So this wasn't a Vipassana retreat, but it was promoted as a meditation retreat. And so I signed up thinking, oh, I'll get some of that happiness back that I'd felt in Thailand. But at this center, we had hot water, we had showers, we had flush toilets, of course. We had beds within a sprung mattresses and two big fat pillows. And we had big warm quilts and electric blankets. And there was a library filled with books and magazines. And there were bean bags that we could sit in to read them. And there was a coffee maker making fresh coffee all through the day. And there were beautiful flower gardens to walk in and then the quiet English countryside. And after a few days, I noticed hardly anybody was coming into the meditation hall. And after a few more days, I wasn't either. (laughs) 
And because the retreat wasn't fully in silence, at meals I started to hear about how much the other people were struggling. One of the people was finding it really hard because they were only serving one brand of black tea and it wasn't her favorite brand. And somebody else was concerned that the inner sprung mattress wasn't firm enough. And someone else thought the salad dressing had too much oil in it. And somebody else noticed that the coffee maker wasn't really keeping the coffee hot enough for long enough. And somebody else felt that the water pressure in the showers was not really strong enough for that many people. <laughs> now, if, if I hadn't just come from that retreat in Thailand, I probably would have been, you know, joining in the party. So I'm not saying, you know, I'm not trying to score points here. But what was interesting to me was that the more comfort we were offered, the less happy, the less content we seemed to be. And actually, I enjoyed that retreat in England way less than the one in Thailand. And I didn't experience anything like the happiness that I'd experienced at Mechi Amon's place. So what was the difference? It seemed to me it was something to do with simplicity and actually not having options. In Thailand, there was no choice. It was totally obvious there wasn't an extra stash of pillows or blankets or mattresses anywhere. And so after a bit of a struggle, the mind just went quiet. But in England, there was the illusion of being able to control the environment. And so the mind was always looking for the most comfortable bed and the tastiest food and the newest magazines and the hottest coffee. And it was endless and it was exhausting. And not long after that retreat, I came across a book by the Pema Chodron. Most of you probably know her, the American Tibetan nun. All her books have great titles, but this one was called The Wisdom of No Escape. And I realized that was the gift in Thailand, the wisdom of no escape. And in the West, though, there are so many ways to escape. And if we have a choice, we'll always go for the easiest option, the one that keeps us firmly in our comfort zones. Now, of course, on one level, it's natural to want to be comfortable. But in the medium to long term, that impulse can actually undermine our deeper well-being. So there's an essay on relinquishment or renunciation by the American monk Tanisaro Bhikkhu, and he calls it trading candy for gold, renunciation as a skill. And he says, there's something in all of us that would rather not give things up. We'd prefer to keep the candy and get the gold. But maturity teaches us that we can't have everything, that to indulge in one pleasure often involves denying ourselves another, perhaps a better one. Thus, we need to establish clear priorities for our investing our limited time and energy where they'll give us the most lasting happiness. That means giving top priority to the mind. Material things and social relationships are unstable and easily affected by forces beyond our control. So the happiness they offer is fleeting and undependable. But the well-being of a well-trained mind can survive even aging, illness, and death. To train the mind, though, requires time and energy. And this is one reason why the pursuit of true happiness demands that we sacrifice some of our external pleasures. 
So if we're serious about getting the deeper benefits of this practice, we do need to give top priority to the mind, as Tanasara Bhikkhu says. And I would add that it's even more necessary these days, not only for our own well-being, but for the well-being of the whole planet. Capitalism, consumerism, the endless craving for comfort underlies so much of the damage that we're doing to this precious home. And as we develop the parami of relinquishment, we can see more and more clearly how it ties into ethical conduct, sila, and our commitment to non-harming. And so if we're serious about that commitment, we need to be willing to look at how we're living every aspect of our lives. And wherever possible, change our behavior to live more in alignment with that commitment to non-harming. And relinquishment can be a very powerful support for that commitment. So there's a lot more I could say, but I wanted to just finish there so that we have time to explore for any of you how might relinquishment and the commitment to non-harming support the broader understanding of how we're living and the impact that we're having, not just on ourselves, but on the whole environment that we live in. So I'll bring it to a close there. Thank you so much for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.